I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. With a new year on the horizon, along with new American leadership after the 2020 election, the United States is poised for a transition. On this episode, we turn to an international investor from our nearest neighbor, a country that is one of America's largest foreign investors, to help put the state of the U.S. market in perspective. Over the long term, I think America is a pretty good bet. That's Michael Turner, CEO of Oxford Properties, a multinational commercial real estate fund owned by one of the largest pension plans in Canada. Oxford has over $60 billion of commercial real estate assets around the world. We're also joined by Chris Ludeman, Global President of Capital Markets for CBRE, with its reach into more than 100 countries worldwide. I think commercial real estate continues to be seen as a a great place to invest, Um, and, and I don't think that has changed in any way, shape, or form. Chris, Michael, and I will talk about what it's like to be a global investor in the U.S. right now. We'll visit markets from coast to coast, including cities of various sizes and demographics and other global regions as well. We'll look across sectors of commercial real estate and break down investment cycles and strategy in light of world events like the pandemic, the election, and more. A view from abroad on capital markets here at home. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. And this week, we are joined by two friends of mine, Michael Turner, the CEO of Oxford Properties. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Spencer. Nice to see you. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. And another great friend and colleague of mine, Chris Ludeman, the global head of capital markets at CBRE. Spencer, Michael, good to be here. And great to have you both. Michael, let's start with the big picture. How does the world of capital see the U.S. today? Let me just give you some comments on my perspective of the U.S. There's about 16 to $17 trillion of negative yielding bonds in the world right now. That capital's got to go somewhere. One of the places in the world that does not have negative yielding bonds, very low interest rates, but not negative, is the U.S., And that's different than Europe as an example, where German bonds would be negative. I think that's a forward-looking view that the world is telling you about the prospects for relative GDP growth. And over the long term, I think America is a pretty good bet. And in the near term, we're riding out the pandemic. It's a difficult period. The other distinguishing place in the short term, in terms of performance in the world, as we know, is being Asia and Australia, which has performed relatively better than North America or the US or Europe. Michael, let me ask you one more setup question. And I would note that CBRE is attaching to today's podcast, a global view on global capital flows, which you can read more about. But people are gonna ask us, why'd you pick Oxford Properties to talk about global capital when A, they're such a close neighbor in Canada and B, Michael's sitting in New York City during this conversation. But I think if you explain a little bit more about Oxford's global properties strategy, I think they'll understand more. So tell us a little bit more about Oxford's global strategy. We're a 60-year-old business and had the pleasure of celebrating our birthday in April of this year. And we had a pandemic party. And at this point, we operate on four different continents. Oxford is a global real estate investor, operator, and developer. And really, we look to build portfolios and businesses or platforms in the strategies in which we choose to invest. Thematically, our favorite trends at the moment, and they were moving into this crisis, you'll like this, Spencer, are creds for credits, 
beds for multifamily, meds for life sciences, sheds for warehouses, and reds for real estate and data. So creds, beds, meds, sheds, and reds. And we are really building verticals in all of those themes around the world, in addition to the businesses that we have existing in offices, as an example, we're a hospitality investor, et cetera. Oxford owns about $60 billion of real estate around the world. And I was reading some of your reports and you're looking to double your portfolio size over the next six or seven years. Has the pandemic changed any of those plans? The pandemic hasn't changed any of our plans, Spencer. In March of last year, if I put my mind back then, um, having to have conversations with my team around, you know, this isn't your run-of-the-mill balance sheet recession. This is a healthcare crisis, which is um, compounding into other crises, including a, an economic crisis. But in my brain, for some reason, I thought this was going to be like a bear hibernating. I thought, you know, uh, there's my bear analogy for you, Spencer, being Canadian. I'm going to go to sleep and, and, and go into my den for five or six months and come out and, and get back on with things. And clearly that is not what's happened, both in terms of timing as well as um, switching the lights uh, back on hasn't been akin to the light switched we turned off. But it hasn't really changed our ambitions in terms of growth. Our growth is driven by really two factors. One is we're owned by a defined benefit pension plan, and so their liabilities will double, and that means their assets must double if they're going to be funded. And we also have a number of large sovereigns and other partners around the world who really like to co-invest with us because they like our values and our capabilities. And so those two sources of capital mean that we will grow and the pathway might be a little bit different and the priorities may be a little bit different, but the, the end goal is the same with or without COVID. Well, Chris, uh, let's dig into Michael's answer there. Michael's saying, well, this was a crisis like none other, but his actual long-term capital outlook is very similar to what it was before in terms of the total capital allocation. Is that consistent with what some of our other global capital sources are saying? Largely consistent. A couple of areas where we've all had to rethink what the probable future is given what we've learned in the recent past. One, which we can talk more about, is the future of office and how it will be used and how things may change in that space and the impact of getting in and out of places more easily and through a a lens of being healthy. Clearly, hospitality is an area that had a lot of impact to it, but we're already seeing those kind of the bid-ask gaps come together and are repricing in that space. Third is the continued uncertainty of certain segments around retail, and the liquidity markets have not yet been as wholly supportive of or the debt markets repricing there. And then fourth would probably be what were our expectations about distress, what's happened and what's likely to happen. But overall themes, I think commercial real estate continues to be seen as a, a great place to invest. And I don't think that has changed in any way, shape or form other than the quantum investing in, in various segments and how that may be impacted in the near to intermediate term. You know, Chris raises an interesting point we come from a traditional perspective of real estate, if I really think about the history of the company and, and a lot of its DNA, which is we're sort of dirt gals and guys, get to know a city, New York, London, whatever, and, and look for opportunity on the dots on the map. We've really flipped in the last few years. We need to build domain expertise and we need sector expertise. 
because that has proven itself, certainly in the last decade or more, to be a greater driver of returns. Are you betting on the right sectors as opposed to, you know, was Phoenix a better bet than Denver? Um, the distinction between did I buy offices or data centers or life sciences or shopping malls are much more profound than the city centers in which you pick. So we have had to evolve our own expertise to be more domain oriented as opposed to dirt oriented. That's a very interesting, Michael, because we have some of our largest investors who come to us who say, we buy markets, we don't buy asset classes necessarily in those markets. So what you're saying is you've moved beyond market to going into the subsector um, as the number one driver of your returns. Yeah, I'm not gonna suggest market does not matter, but let's say in the last 50 years, you're only allowed to make two choices. What is my sector or what is my market? For probably 40 of those years, and you would know this better than me, Spencer, if you could only make one bet on two axes, you're gonna bet on the market. In the last 10 to 15 years, that has not been true. You are much better off betting on the sector than the market to generate higher returns on average. Not always, not 100% of the time, but on average. And that doesn't dismiss um, market as a critical consideration. And we're not going to places where we don't know our way around and we don't have relationships and we don't have some expertise. But you can extend your sector knowledge to uh, cities and jurisdictions around the world where you feel comfortable operating, where you have um, perhaps some competitive advantage or you have customer relationships or some unique required operating capability to service that niche. Well, Michael, let's push that a little bit. And let me turn to you, Chris, because this has been one of the fundamental debates we've been having now for the last several months, which is there are some markets which are the traditional markets for large investors. That includes San Francisco, New York, London, Berlin, Tokyo. We can go around the world. A lot of people are down on these major markets. Um, what's your point of view, Chris? Well, if you just take New York for an example, think about how many times people that felt New York was done. And I, most of these major cities are big cities because of what they have been historically, what they are now and what they will become. They attract talent, they attract innovation, they attract capital. And when those three things come together, there'll be near-term disruptions and it could be caused by a whole host of things. And this past one has been around an unexpected black swan in the pandemic but doesn't mean they won't come back. And usually like many situations where the companies or cities or relationships, they may have to take a step or two back before they take several strides forward. And usually in that readjustment, there is learning that takes place. It could be tangentially, if you think about some of these big cities, maybe the bubble is popped on housing prices and on rents. So those rents and housing prices may come back down, make it more affordable. So my sense is the big cities will come back. They will continue to be vital centers of innovation and, and capital deployment. But at the same time, if you watch the flow of people, you've watched the flow of capital and innovation, some of these emerging second tier cities that are no longer second tier, they're just maybe in the quantum smaller have emerged. And I don't think they're gonna go away. And I think the small cities will teach the old cities some new tricks. We don't call them tier two cities. We call them high growth hubs. Maybe that's uh, designed to make us feel better. But if you look at it empirically, and I, I can't help myself, Spencer, because um, I am a sort of numbers mathematician nerd. And so I do look at the data. 
clearly the high growth hubs that you would identify, I would identify, are growing faster in terms of population, they're growing faster in terms of GDP growth than the traditional gateway markets. And that has been the case for several years. That is not true just under COVID, it's been accelerated under COVID. So we historically have had a lot of our capital in the Northeast in the US and over the last several years, we've been pushing more of that South and towards the mountain region. And I think this uh, period of time, it's just uh, affirmed that thesis and that direction of, of travel for us. So I think the word for all of these cities is cyclical and these high growth hubs are gonna experience some headwinds as they are now and some downturns. I think in the overall COVID environment, Spencer, we, we see the world as two trades. There's the COVID acceleration trade. So everything that we were trying to get in front of as a trend and thought we had time, that's accelerated. So if somebody criticized us, it would be for not going fast enough. But the second trade is the COVID reversal trade. And I don't think that hotels are gonna stay empty forever. I don't think office buildings are gonna stay empty forever. I don't think I'm gonna be able to walk down Lower Broadway in Soho forever and see that once proud retail corners are now empty, are gonna be empty forever. So that will be the COVID reversal trade. It will reveal itself in 2021. As Michael was talking about these big cities and new, not new cities, but these hyper growth cities that we've all experienced. I remember, you know, five, 10 years ago, there was a real yield premium for the perceived risk to going to some of these cities. And that yield premium has been priced out and it's been priced out not just because all that capital was there, but because those cities have fundamentally changed and there's a belief that liquidity will not just be opportunistic, that it will continue to cycle through. So again, it's that part of evolution that we all have to be cognizant of. And one of the advantages people like Michael have, and I guess in a small way that I have, is when you travel broadly and you experience cultures and places uh, more widely, your field of vision, your perspective can change dramatically. Chris, um, I've enjoyed bumping into you in cities around the world. And that, that is one of the joys, if I have to share, Spencer, of my job, I'm sure it is of Chris's job too, getting on phone calls at six in the morning to help somebody out in um, Singapore or being on a call at midnight because it's more convenient for Sydney. That's not a joy. But, you know, understanding and appreciating how small the world is and being able to see trends in one market showing up uh, elsewhere and allocating capital on a relative basis is one of the things that we try to do. As we look into these other markets, and again, every market has their local flavor, one of the markets that, uh, Michael, I believe you're looking at is India. Why India? Why now? Asia represents, I think, over 50% of the world's population, close to 50% of the world's GDP, 70% of the world's land mass, et cetera. So for us as a global capital allocator and investor, we just have to be there. The growth rates are also a lot more significant than they are in the West, where we're all getting a little more aged and a little slower. And our shareholder, you mentioned them previously, Spencer, they have stuck their toes in the water and made some infrastructure investments. Um, we've spent several years building relationships there on the ground. And I think it's a huge market. English is the common language. English common law is something that we can navigate, although I think it's done in a unique Indian way. And there are a handful of 
players there that are accustomed to building partnerships with institutional capital and operators. And I think you're able to navigate your way through India now and make a return that you might not have been able to do 10 or 20 years ago. And we're now seeing the first generation exits. So Blackstone has uh, listed embassy REIT. Brookfield similarly has aggregated an office portfolio and listed an office REIT. All of these things will add transparency and uh, attract more capital to that market. And I think it's a, an attractive place and we're gonna start to put our toes into the waters there a little more meaningfully in the years ahead. Maybe sticking on the India theme for a moment, uh, I've spent a fair amount of time in India, mostly as a, a learner. And to Michael's point, or to expand on his point, you think about the expanding middle class. I mean, they're so far behind in terms of their appetite for retail. And if you look at the quality of their developments and they're building these massive retail schemes that we started to do 50 years ago, and, but they're doing them better. And the quality of construction is getting better. I think one of the big dings in India, which is similar in many emerging markets, is you think about currency and you think about F FX risks, you think about the rule of law and how do people, um, if you think about the regulatory environment to encourage outside investment, what happens if things go wrong? Is there an exit strategy? Is there a, a place that you can go to for arbitration of disputes? And I think India is learning about those things very, very rapidly and recognizing they're having to change some of their, I would say, legal infrastructure to make sure that people like Michael Turner feel comfortable making an investment there over a, a long term. So those are things that are happening. And then the other ding on places like India, and if you could put that in other places, is their infrastructure was unreliable. You think about their uptime and just basic goods and services like electricity. They've had to work very hard on transportation infrastructure, on electricity, to make sure that there is basic uptime. And they've got the will to do it. They've got a labor base that can do it. And then if you pivot into some of these emerging markets, for instance, in the Middle East, one of the blessings that they have is they're, they, they're not burdened with old infrastructure. I mean, so their starting place for putting in infrastructure can not be weighed down by trying to get the last pennies of value out of old infrastructure. So that gives them, while it may seem these schemes are big and they're expensive, sometimes starting from scratch can be more helpful. And I, you see a lot of that in the Middle East, uh, some places in Southeast Asia uh, that are, that are going to become markets to deal with. We're all looking for the same thing which is the best risk-adjusted return, and that key word is risk. And the risk factors are things like rule of law, uh, but also the cost of capital going in there. So, Michael, let me ask you two questions. Number one, do you hedge your money when you go into different countries? Because not every global investor does. And number two, has the business changed so much that we can manage it through models, algorithms, uh, and not physical visits? I'll make it really simple, uh, Spencer, as a real estate investor, we don't make decisions about buying or selling real estate based upon the fluctuation of any basket of currencies against any other. So if the rupee was expensive relative to a basket of currencies, would that deter us at this point in time from lagging in? No. If the rupee was high, would that compel us to exit? No, we would still make real estate decisions based upon real estate fundamentals. I would say that People just think turning on and off a switch, say like a hedging switch, 
it's not easy. I mean, it's easy to look at it on, on a screen, but in terms to execute a strategy, you have to believe that you can understand that, that hedging risk over a duration of time. And so we have seen in the, prior to the, the hedging uh, costs coming way back in because our interest rates are so low, you know, you just started to see the flow of capital, say, in the United States from Korea, really slow down. The amount of inbound uh, German capital into certain places really slowed down because their hedging costs were up. So they make that decision to stop pretty quickly to, in order to, to, to restart the pump. It doesn't happen overnight. The second question I asked Michael, because this is really a question I was going to start with you, then I was going to ping pong the ball to Chris, which is the and I don't want to use this in a pejorative way because I, I think your models are, if they're as accurate as you suggest, a, a terrific innovation in our business technologically to be able to underwrite so well with desktop models for different markets. So tell us about those models and how much you use them. And also this thing about physically visiting the real estate, because that's relevant for times like today when there are so many travel restrictions in place. Sure. So I, I would not... Um be so bold as to characterize our models as you have. So thank you for being ambitious on our behalf, Spencer, but we got to get there one day. So the models I was describing to you are really what we use for capital allocation decisions. Example being, we'd like to be in North American multifamily. Why? What markets? What should we expect out of Denver on average over the next three years? I wouldn't take that and expect that to mean we can project what the return will be in Denver for a given year with 95% accuracy. But for most markets, there's not as many variables that are as confusing as you may think. And you can train the heck out of these models, as you know, using uh, neural networks and artificial intelligence. And the back testing would suggest that somewhere between, you know, an R squared of 0.9 or higher is pretty reasonable to get for the look forward returns on average for the next three years in a given market. I would never take that to say, we never leave our desks, we don't look at properties and we don't underwrite individual rent rolls to make investment decisions. But we will have a view on a market and if, if one of our originators says, I wanna buy this office building in New York City and it's the first quarter of 2020, we would have to say to them, what's your business plan and what do you see that's different than our own view on the market here? Because you must have some extraordinary execution pathway or we're missing something. Or again, they're more affirmative. We won't debate the merits of multifamily Denver ad nauseum in our investment committee when we've gone through these models and have these discussions at a macro level again and again and again. So at a minimum, it provides a, just using a common term, a sanity check of, look, your investment idea is different than what the model says. Explain to me why you think your particular deal is an outlier from what the base model is suggesting. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I'd reverse even more. Investment professionals love doing deals and we don't want them chasing shiny objects. We wanna have rigorous debate and conversation as to where are we gonna allocate our resources. That doesn't just mean money. That means time, that means relationships, that means where we're gonna get on airplanes and not, so that our folks are not just chasing the shiniest object, but they're actually bringing things forward that are in service of a thesis that we've had, which are debated and have tons of human intervention, as well as some econometric and computer modeling. 
So let's go to the getting on an airplane thing again. I know we've talked a lot about that, and I've met lots of my friends in global airports too, and it is a cool part of the job. But tragically, um, during the last nine months, uh, among the many fallouts from COVID-19 is we're not getting on a lot of airplanes. But at the same time, Chris, uh, you and I are aware that several of the large office trades that we're doing right now uh, in markets around the U.S. are being bought by Asian investors from Singapore, from South Korea, and elsewhere. How are they doing it if they can't get here? Number one, uh, we've innovated as an industry. We've innovated around seconding due diligence to trusted advisors. We've innovated around, um, you think about the normal closing techniques and how we've been able to do many of those things remotely that we always used to have to have people and lawyers and all these people around a common table. In some places that was common, some places you've been having remote closing for a long time. you think about the advent of really good virtual tours that are live and directed potentially by a conference room that can be several thousand miles away. So you can actually examine that physical plant in a way that we would never have either allowed ourselves to think about, we would never have um, said that that would be a preferred way of doing it, but people do innovate. And what has happened in many of these trades is either Uh, if that capital was, say, situated, its executive capital was in Singapore. They either have delegated inspection or they have used their on-the-ground resources that they had in some part of the United States, by example, and, and seconded it to their own people and trusted them. And then that probably says, as we look at our global organizations, do we have the right talent? when we do have to rely on them in a way that we never did before. Can they stand on their own two feet intellectually? Can we trust them? Do they care about the same things relative to excellence that we do? And that'll be a thing I think we'll go back to when things calm down and say, how did my people perform when I needed them to be more than I thought I ever needed them to be? Let me go back to some of these trades again that we've had from Singapore from South Korea. And we've seen bidders now from Spain. We see bidders from Israel all over the world. And as a matter of fact, I was on a phone call the other day with a, uh, a globally famous demographer named Parag Khanna, who we had at our symposium a few years ago, if you remember, Chris. And he thinks that the world is going to get more regional. And he thinks that we're going to see not only trade, but capital flows, rather than expanding, contracting into uh, the Canada, U.S., Latin and South America, the Asian sector, the European sector. Michael, do you see that happening? I think the era that was so prevalent in much of my career around the integration of everything, technology, supply chains, uh, supranational uh, institutions, so on and so forth, that era is over. There's no doubt about it. That doesn't mean we're all gonna go into our caves. The world is too interdependent for that to happen. But we're clearly articulating a new world order. And one of the consequences of that may be that we go to a greater amount of regionalism than globalism. I think that's quite possible. The capital markets are the most global business in the world and they have been long before people talked about globalization. Money has moved around um, since as long as you can send it over a wire. I don't see that abating, Spencer. And I think we're in a world where technology is becoming more regionalized because of things like data privacy and um, 
governments wanting to express sovereignty over certain things for their citizens. More regions are going to be able to fulfill for their own consumption. We're seeing just-in-time inventory supply chains be replaced by just-in-case. Just-in-case there's an interruption, I need a little more slack. That's why God gave you two lungs instead of one. If one of them failed, you can still keep going. We're going to see more of that in parts of the economy as well. And I think that could create some blocks, as you've described, in some ways. But we are not going back to a world where there's a wall and it separates those that are on one side versus those that are on other in all ways, shapes, and forms. I think regionalization will likely be temporary until people have greater sense of trust, safety, and security. So I think that's going to be a reasonable outcome in the near term. But as Michael said, capital flows globally. You cannot stop ideas from flowing globally. You now can stop people or restrain people from flowing globally. But I think that bell is just temporarily wrong. It'll come back. One of the books that has been most meaningful to me that I've read in the last um, year is uh, a 1965 book written by a guy by the name of Will Durant, The Lessons of History. If you go through that book, you realize that as, what was it, Mark Twain said, uh, history may not repeat itself, but it surely does rhyme. And, and if you look at this book that was written in 1965, and then you reflect on the questions you asked, I think the, the, therein will find a lot of pretty simple answers. I'm going to disagree with my friend, Chris. Um, one of his neighbors, not as close to him as a, a short drive, but a great author, thinker, Peter Zahan, lives in Austin. And I read one of his most recent books. He's written three or four. It's called Disunited Nations. And his entire thesis is basically, Michael, the world order that you know is based upon the U.S.'s role post-World War II, the Bretton Woods Agreement, and we're going to rebuild your nations and you'll have access to our markets and we will um, patrol the seas against piracy. And you only have to do one thing. You're on that team or my team. And that was the only choice. And that great struggle for values was won with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And now we've been drifting for more than 30 years without the need for America to fulfill that role. I think increasingly without the interest of Americans to want to fulfill that role and without a bank account that can afford to always fulfill that role. So I do see America pulling back as it has, perhaps not as much under the next administration as it has under the current one, but I don't see that being replaced and going back to what I grew up with um, in terms of my mind and my norms as a kid. And I think the premacy of regionalism is gonna be a greater force in the near term than globalism is in my opinion. Well, I'm going to ask the last couple of questions more enlightening now around fashion. So the first one is what I call the rise of ESG capital, environmental social governance capital. I was on a call the other day with a big investor who said that he estimates that there's about a couple hundred billion of that capital in the world today, but rising to five trillion over the next decade. Um, certainly some places like the EU are leaders in environmental policy uh, and certainly social policies now are, are much more important in the U.S. Michael, how does Oxford look at ESG capital? 
We've always been a leader in the importance of environmental stewardship, energy management, greenhouse gas targeting. Um, it is growing in importance. Increasingly, it is more important to our owner and our shareholder. And I would not disagree with any of the numbers that you shared. This whole trend of ESG-sponsored investment strategies, that may be a trend because ESG is going to end up being prevalent everywhere, every organization, every company. And if you are not fulfilling your obligations in this regard, you're just not going to have any access to capital. Chris, how are we advising our clients today on ESG capital? Is it here? Is it growing? And should they make some of these changes that are more expensive to attract it? Well, as you indicated in your introductory remarks to the question, um, the EU is there in the sense that it's, that it's the tip of their tongue, top of their mind, and that's how they're behaving. We're behind and Asia's further behind us. But I would liken it to uh, when we were t thinking about green buildings. Uh, it used to be, oh gosh, if I take, do what it takes to put the capital to make this thing um, certified, will I get a better rent? The answer typically is you may get a bigger audience, you may not get a bigger rent, but if you now fast forward over the past decade, that's really become table stakes. And anything that's new that's coming out of the ground, it's got those characteristics. So I, I, I just think it's a wave that's coming. I don't think it's a temporary thing. I believe it's just going to happen sequentially, but the time frame for getting these things done will be compressed. And if we ask that question in five years, people say, yeah, and what about it? All right, two more questions before final thoughts. One of them is flex space, the future of that space, more or less of it. And the second, work from home. How much, if any, does it diminish office demand? So Michael, flex and work from home. I think flex will become more prevalent. I think organizations have found the benefits of being able to flex their footprint. So I think it's gonna grow in prevalence. Okay, work from home. Um, how much does it impact the office business? Overall, I think it's a net headwind to office space. The Cranmore persons per square foot of space that we've seen for 20 years, that's stopped and that will reverse. And some of that reversal will be offset by a more flexible workplace environment. I agree with Michael on his views of the flex space. What I am experiencing and talking with a wide spectrum of people and then listening to others that would be experts. I think the initial gains on uh, productivity, working from home, employee engagement, working from home, which were quite high in the early parts of the pandemic, are quickly wearing thin. People are feeling isolated. I think they're feeling detached. I think they're feeling lonely. They're feeling uh, less productive and a little bit shiftless. And so consequently, I think the early gains, we're gonna give back some of those gains. And once there is a, uh, an environment that allows us to be safe and secure and believe in mass transit in those cities that have them, I think you're going to see a snapback to office occupation, notwithstanding the fact that I do believe those spaces will be less dense for the foreseeable future. Last question, final thoughts. 2021, Michael. Optimistic, pessimistic? What's your point of view on 2021? Uneven. So look, I'm quite optimistic. After you've fallen down a hill, smashed your teeth, broken your legs, hit your face, and you get to the bottom of the valley, the one thing you get to look forward to is coming out the other side and looking up. So we've all fallen down the side of the hill. 
So that would make me in general optimistic. You know, Spencer, better than I do that certain sectors of real estate lag and some of those lags are going to take another year or two to play out. But we're now at a point where we have the ability to believe that tomorrow is going to be in general a better day than today. And that uh, in and of itself is going to unleash some animal spirits. And that makes me an optimist. I would bifurcate it. And I don't know if we're the middle place of the bifurcation, but I would say um, I think the second half of 2021 will be materially better than the first half of 2021. I think uh, we're starting to see evidence in our numbers of people coming off the sidelines. So I think 21 generally would be better than 20, but I think the, end, the latter part of 21 will be substantially better than the first part. Well, on behalf of the Weekly Take, I want to thank two friends of mine, Michael Turner, CEO of Oxford Properties. Michael, thank you for joining us. Spencer, thank you. Chris Ludeman, my good friend, second time guest, uh, great leader of our global capital markets group. Chris, thank you for joining us. Spencer, thanks for making it happen. Michael, good to be with you. Nice to see you too, Chris. It was, it was a fun chat we had. For more on our show, check out cbre.com slash the weekly take. You can also find our new viewpoint, Observations from the Front Lines, which covers today's topic, a deep dive analysis into global capital markets and their recovery. We'd also love your feedback. So if you found us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Once again, thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.